Hello, I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Our guest tonight served for 23 years as senior aide and special assistant to Archbishop Charles Chaput in Denver and then in Philadelphia. Prior to serving the Archbishop, he was editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register for about 15 years. So he's been privy to an insider's view of the workings of the Catholic Church in America and in Catholic media. And he's had contact with lots of very interesting individuals in a way that few others have. His latest efforts to assist the church come in the form of a unique book compiled from 103 interviews with bishops, clergy, religious, lay people, and people from other countries who've come here fairly recently. Together, these conversations yield a candidly truthful and revealing yet a very hopeful picture of the Catholic Church in the United States. This is really an interesting story, so please welcome the Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, as well as the author of the book, True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church, Mr. Francis X. Meyer. How are you, Father? Ben, welcome. Good to have you here. How are you doing? Delightful to be here. Actually, uh, one of the most interesting persons I've talked to is you and our <laughs> war stories over the last 24 hours. It's, it's fun to, to exchange stories about, uh, you know, about life in the church because yeah. uh, there's always uh, humor and challenge and so many other qualities that you run into over time. But it's well, been it's a great like, life. It's like Rosanna and Adana said, it's always <laughs> something. Yeah. yeah, well, that certainly you know, encapsulates the church. I mean, it's, yeah. it's been around a long time and, and uh, with ups and downs. Uh, and I think... Yeah. I think it's just a fabulous, I mean, I, it's one of the great blessings of my life to have had the opportunity to work this closely with bishops and, and folks like yourself that um, are experienced in the field mm. and, and to see that in a new light. I don't think many lay people get the opportunity to intimately connect with a bishop and see how he makes decisions, how he treats his priests, how he treats his people, the anxieties and the satisfactions that these men have. It's, it's been quite a ride. Uh, and, a, and a good one. I'm, I, I entered the process of writing this, um, believing in the people I was going to be talking to. But if anything, I, I come away even more encouraged than when I went in. When did you start these interviews? I started them in December of 2020, and I finished okay. them in May of 2022. And, and uh, some, some of that time was during COVID, yes. you know, uh, shutdowns. Did you get to go and meet them face to face, or did you have to do it over Skype and the phone and such no, as that? No, that's why God invented Zoom, you know, yeah. because, because it, it really came in handy. Actually, it was terrific because it also allowed me to record the conversations with the permission of the people I was talking sure, to, obviously. Sure. But that made the editing process possible. Otherwise, it would have been uh, it really unmanageable. The interviews in transcription all ran between seven and 11,000 words and handling that in an editing and condensing fashion that remained true to the actual, what people actually said, that was pretty challenging, but you know, also very 
satisfying in, when the product was done. I mean, you were interviewing a lot of preachers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we talk for a living. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and when you get, you know, I mean, the, we've talked about this before, but two of the chapters <clears throat> are anonymous interviews because mm -hmm. uh, the, the lay people in the chapter, I think it's chapter five, were primarily people who were in teaching the teaching profession on faculties, and they were afraid they were going to be canceled by from, if they were from. They were college teachers. Yes, most yeah, of them. That's... Most of them were that, and you know you can get canceled, and and their attitude that, was. That's a nice way to say they get yeah, fired. That's right. So uh, so at their request, I I gave them anonymity, and the bishops uh, I always intended to give anonymity, because bishops when they speak publicly um, have to be prudent. And uh, because their words are always picked apart, they're misunderstood, or they're deliberately misrepresented. And I wanted to give them an opportunity where they didn't have to worry about that. They mm -hmm. could just be the guys that they were. And uh, number one, they're real smart. Number two, they're very dedicated to their people. Number three, they're articulate uh, and very frank. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who reads these interviews is going to encounter the real deal. I mean, these guys were, uh, were very candid. And, uh, I, there's, there's a certain kind of verbal dance that anybody in the public media pretty much needs to do mm -hmm. because you cannot trust reporters no. to convey the truth of what you said. Right. Having been an editor, I can guarantee that you can't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, it, uh, and, not, and, and frequently it isn't a, a question of ill will. It's just a question of not doing a very good job of translating what the person actually meant when they said something. Yeah. You know, or, or catching them. In, in a, no, in we a, don't want to underestimate yeah. the bad will oh, no, of no, no, so many No, no, no. There's plenty of that out there, too. There's yeah. plenty of that out there. Yeah. And especially in regard to the church. Mm -hmm. You know, because, I, I mean, I have similar experiences. What gets said in private conversation with a bishop or other mm -hmm. priests about, you know, what's happening in the church, the, the candidness has to be kept within bounds mm -hmm. when you're in the public because the press will want to make more of it than you said. You know, I think that, that's, first of all, it's absolutely true. I think, I, I think a lot of lay people, maybe not a lot, but some lay people interpret that prudence as either cowardice or weakness of will. And um, I mean, it's, it, it, it fails to understand the circumstances that these men are in so frequently. I mean, there is some, I mean, look, the church is loaded with people. People have lots of flaws. Those flaws apply to the clergy as much as to, the, as to lay people. So sometimes you run into a bishop who is more of a, a politician or a diplomat or simply weak than, um, weaker than he should be. But that's rare. I mean, most of these men are, are trying to do their best under very difficult circumstances, and they, they have courage in doing it. It's not a job that... Uh, uh, <laughs> It's not a job I would want. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very stressful. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, seven In fact, days a week. I took a bow against it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But th there's, there's a parallel to the way they have to speak and the way parents have to speak in yeah. front of their children. Mm -hmm. There are some things about finances, family illnesses and crises, um, th issues about parental intimacy, and all, a lot of topics that you have to approach very gingerly so that your children yeah. don't jump to conclusions. And if you think of the press as being like, you know, four-year-olds 
who will take something you say way out of context because they don't understand. Then you've got what, what's going on between the bishops and the press yeah. on a large level. And so, so it's understandable, but the importance of your book is that you were able to break through that. They treated you as one of the adult kids in the room. Uh -huh. And they let you in on the adult conversation. That's the way I would portray. Yes, I, I mean they most of, all of these bishops knew that I had worked. Uh, when you work for a, um, a senior bishop for 23 years and you still have your job at the end of it, um, the assumption is is that you know what you're doing and you're not going to burn them. And and right. so it made it a lot easier, given the background that I have, to uh, to get them to relax and actually speak candidly, which they did. You know. And one of the other things, too, is you would have encountered a number of them yeah. in professional context working with Archbishop Shapu in Correct. Well, either archdiocese, Denver or Philly, mm -hmm. and being able to, you know, take on the, the relational aspect, knowing that, you know, relaxed here, that is another advantage I think that you had. I think that's that true, Father. A lot of other people, including many clergy, wouldn't have. Right. They, 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 they I either knew them, a few of them I knew, all of them knew who I had worked for or I had had some contact with um, uh, indirectly or directly in the past. So uh, it wasn't like I was being dropped in from outside completely. Right. And that, made, that did make a difference. Now, one of the things that I think is uh, very important of those conversations, again, and it, it's not just bishops. Uh, as you said, it was sometimes university professors. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was lay folk, it was religious, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a number of folks who were not from the United States but have come here and they Correct. have a di their own perspective on American Catholicism mm -hmm. in contrast to their home country. What were some of the most surprising things you heard in these candid conversations? Well. I had heard so many of them before that for me it wasn't, it, I didn't have a lot of surprises. I mean, uh -huh. I expected, I expected um, pretty much what I got, except I got more of it and better than I thought I was going to get. I think uh, the lay people, and mo most of my interviews were actually with lay people, they weren't with, uh, with mm -hmm. bishops or clergy, uh, because this is primarily about um, bringing lay people into a serious vocational commitment to the mission of the church. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, they were, you know, I mean, there's certain wounds that are there, I mean, in terms of uh, the residual effect of the, the abuse scandal from the early 2000s. There was a lot of resistance, or a lot of uh, irritation with financial mismanagement. There was, uh, there's a general sense that um, confusion is bad and we've got too much of it right now. Uh, and uh, most lay people want strong leadership and uh, sometimes they don't get it. And, clear messaging and sometimes they don't get that and that gets people upset when you're in the middle of kind of a tumultuous time. So were those surprises? Not really, but uh, I, I was impressed with how strongly people felt about those things. Mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of clarity, what were some of the areas where clarity was most desired? I think uh, a lot of people didn't, don't understand, didn't understand and don't understand the necessity of, of synodality 
it's, an, it's a complex theological uh, idea, and it's not been rolled out in a very effective way for people to understand it. Um, sexuality is a mess right now in terms yeah. of where the church is on a number of issues, and people are upset about that because, you know, under John Paul and, and um, Benedict XVI, there was a real strong sense of Christian anthropology, the idea of what is a human being, what's our purpose here, those things. And that's become muddied over the last decade, not necessarily intentionally on the part of the Holy Father, but, but uh, I think a number of um, significant cardinals and theologians have um, have compounded the problems that people have in understanding the purpose of sexuality by seeming to be soft on issues of, um, you know, gay marriage and things like that. So um, that that causes a lot of unrest because people at home are dealing with children who are coming out as gay or transgender because they feel um, licensed to do that or that that's a positive thing to be doing, and and uh, that that's a source of real suffering for people. They mm -hmm. want clarity and strong leadership on that, and sometimes they feel like they're not getting it. And that, I think part of the importance of it is that in the modern society, the sexual issues are not only about sex. They are highly politicized, oftentimes at the service of political ideologies like Marxism mm -hmm. that ideologically wants to see the role of men in the family broken down so that a more woman-centered family would be more open to sharing wealth throughout the whole population. That's, that's part of Marx's and Engels' ideology. Uh, and so you, you, and then other people have political agendas. So a lack of clarity in the face of people frequently making power moves against the family and against uh, our anthropology. But I'm, I'm for, by anthropology, we mean yeah. the, human how identity. How do we understand yeah. what it means to be human? Yes, you, issues of human nature, human identity, sexual right. purpose. Those are all connected to what we call anthropology, but but um, I think too, I, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of being skeptical toward social science in this issue because so, a lot of yeah. social science sees the family as an authoritarian structure creating authoritarian personalities. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bias and it's not just Christians who have noticed this. I mean, non-religious scholars like uh, Christopher Lash have been writing about, wrote about this significantly too that um, social science has a bias against the family in a sense. And the uh, more that social science has a kind of determinative effect on the, on the behavior of the church, the more problems we're gonna get. Yeah. I think it's really important, Father, and we talked about this before the show, it's very important for people to understand that um, history and getting a grip on it, understanding our history is critically important. The Jews have a a wonderful word, I think it's zachor, and it means remembering or memory. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that the Jewish people have survived persecutions over the centuries and over the millennia, is that they remember who they are as a people. And we should have that same memory. Yes. And in, in, in the United States, um, you know, it's printed on our national symbols. I mean, you know, we're in Novus Seclorum, uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order of the ages. We have an instinctive bias against the past, 
And for Catholics, that's just extremely dangerous because we have to remember history in order to understand the circumstances we're in right now. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And um, I remember recently watching um, a series on African-American filmmakers. And there were a number of film professors saying, we have to fight for history. You, you don't just accept it. Mm -hmm. You fight for history. To get the facts requires a lot of work and struggle or else you lose who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, th I think, was true for those black filmmakers, but also for us in the church oh, absolutely. and us as Americans or any other nation. It's very important. You know, one of the bishops that I interviewed um, said, if you think it's bad now, just go back and think about the 10th and 11th centuries, Yeah, which is a catastrophe. I mean, it's when you read the history of that period or even the history of the 125 years running up to the, se uh, up to the Reformation, it's just a story of one catastrophe after another. And yet here we are tonight, you know, in a wonderful studio with this terrific ministry that's EWTN. I mean, so God, I, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. You know, history is a great teacher. It teaches us two things. Number one, it teaches us to be humble because we have this exquisite ability to mess things up, okay? Mm -hmm. And we do it repeatedly. But it also teaches us hope because, well, here we are. I mean, God doesn't abandon us. He raises up saints from the rubble and, and, and uh, we can count on that. But that doesn't happen unless individuals take on responsibility for their vocation. It's not something you can delegate to somebody else. Lay people have to own the fact that they're evangelists just as much as the clergy. And, and when they do that, that's when saints are formed. Well, one of the quotes that I'd, I'd like to read from your book is from a, a, a woman. She's a wife. She's a theologian. She's a ministry executive. And she, she said in the interview, I've served in all sorts of church and church-related positions. When people ask me, why do you still work for the church? I say, well because I want to stay and fight to make her better. I'd never give up on the church as my mother and teacher. It's our obligation, all of us, to help the church be the church that our Lord and the faithful deserve, the church that the world needs. And it's a very wise reflection. Yeah. It's something that applies to marriage, I mean, it, it's not as if you receive this package of perfection when you're, <laughs> and neither does your spouse. No, I, I, Sue Ann <laughs> you know? will be happy to tell you all about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that, you know, but you work together to deal with your own relationship, to get to heaven together, and to raise the kids that you didn't plan on. That, you know, you don't know what their personalities are going to be like, but this is who you get. Well, you and know, the interesting thing, Father, about that chapter, because you're quoting from the chapter of uh, where I interview, I think it's 10 women and 10 men. Yeah. And uh, they're all very articulate, but the women are just home runs. And, yeah. and I think, I, why is that? I've thought about it a lot. I mean, I think they, they not only think these are really intelligent women, but they feel for the church. They feel uh, uh, simultaneously kind of a wifely and, and also maternal concern for her and and so uh, they're very authentic comments like the one that you uh, yeah. the one that you just quoted uh, she's yeah. a great lady by the way really yes. fine woman and this is uh, 
this is one of the things where it moves towards the hope that it's not, uh, uh, this book is not true confessions of despair no. by any means. <laughs> no, not at it's all. It's not a true confessions of pessimism, mm -hmm. it's, nor is it optimism. It's Christian hope yeah. that can look at the reality and say, the Lord can use me to help improve this situation. Well, you know, the title, com the title was kind of a uh, trip coming to it because uh, there's three roots of it, I guess. One of them is, is, look, we confess every Sunday when we go to Mass that yep. we believe in the, in the Lord and, and our lives confess Jesus Christ. That's what we are as a, as a form of confessor. Um, the second thing was uh, I've always been really powerfully influenced by uh, Augustine's Confessions. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course the third thing is the movie True Confessions that we've talked about, which is not exactly a pious movie, but it's deeply, deeply Catholic in the end. And that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite films. So, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, you know, how articulate the ladies were, they're also from that same section, uh, a husband, father, and lay ministry mm -hmm. leader. Mm -hmm. who also gave a, a very interesting quote about his own optimism when he said, I suppose in a way this is the best time to be a Christian. The world is pushing us back on the gospel mm -hmm. and that's a gift because most people aren't really materialists. They just believe the wrong things. Do they hunger for justice? Do they feel broken? Excellent. <laughs> Jesus Christ came to die for them. So being elaborately clever about evangelization isn't what we need right now. We need to preach the gospel with clarity, confidence, energy, and joy. We need to live and to be a new Acts of the Apostles. And you know, yeah. as we had spoken, and I've said many times in the shows, you know, this is uh, parallel to Acts of the Apostles. This is an age of martyrdom with 40 million martyrs in the last century. Uh, in modernity, this is a very modern issue, the biggest period of martyrdom in the history of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet it's people standing up for the faith and love of Jesus Christ. And as the world pushes against the church, which they see as a political power, we rely on Jesus Christ and his gospel. You know, uh, well, two observations about what you just said is that it's called the Acts of the Apostles, not the big ideas of the Apostles. <laughs> you know, I mean, the ideas are important and the intellectual life of the church is very important, but people are finally convicted by other people, hmm. by the witness of other people. And that's why I mean, that's certainly, you've been, your whole life has been about this, and I, I hope mine reflects it as well. Um, you can't delegate the task of being an evangelist. Hmm. I don't mean that you have to go out and, and hit people over the head with the Bible, but you have to live that's what you're claiming. It's not a good idea. No, lawsuits. It isn't. <laughs> lawsuits. That's true, and it doesn't tend to work anyway. But I mean, it, people are convicted by what they see in you or somebody else who really believes what they claim to believe. And part of the problem in American culture is that uh, living here has made it easy to say one thing and do another. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to prove that we're Christian. We just have to say it. And, yeah. and what that leads to is mediocrity and then slipping away entirely from the church. 
Or so, in the case of Bennett's mother, Angelica, is one of her favorite, or one of my favorite lines by her is that she just knew too many people who looked like they were baptized in pickle juice. You know, <laughs> they just are not yeah. happy or joyful. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, see, uh, Francis really was onto something right at the beginning of his pontificate when he talked about the joy of the gospel, the gospel of joy. I mean, it, 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 there is, uh, look, we, you know, we've laughed about this in the past. I'm a glass half empty guy until proven otherwise. I'm a skeptic. Mm -hmm. and, and, but um, I take great, a great happiness in the life that I have through the gospel. I've got a great wife, got four beautiful kids, uh, and uh, I may live in my head too much and be too concerned with problems, but when I look back on my life, it's been a beautiful life, a happy and joyful life, and we need to own that in a way that other people are convicted by it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a, a, a very important thing that each one of us has to take that responsibility. I think we're about just a year apart in age, and oftentimes the, uh, the the way we saw things in the church is that the laity were the object of the priests preaching, teaching, and evangelization. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's not the case. The world is the object of every Catholic's evangelization. No one of us is exempt from that. And right. We don't have just the priests and the bishops evangelizing, they train us to go out and do evangelizing with priests. Can, I can't go to most business places. Yeah. You know, I don't is, have the, the pass key or the insurance won't let me in the garage or the shop, you know, but the people who work there are there. Yeah, but, you know, look, the, one of the... One of the great ironies of my lifetime as a Catholic is clericalism. I mean, we, the idea that clericalism is a lay problem. It's kicking things upstairs to the clergy for them to do, not taking responsibility for, your, for yourself. And it can work the other way, too. I mean, the, the, the um, priests can behave in a way that um, diminishes the, the significance of lay people. But, but it, it's a two-way street. I mean... Priests have to be priests and lay people have to be lay people. And lay people have the job of, of evangelizing the secular world in a yeah. particular way. We can't delegate it. Well, th this is, again is one of the things that uh, you, you, you say um, in there that you, you talk about the bishops. And again, this quote uh, says that the bishops in the church tend to get blamed for everything. Yeah, that's for sure. And sometimes they earn it. <laughs> But bishops didn't invent the birth control pill. They didn't create the sexual anarchy that flowed from it. Bishops didn't invent the, the transistor or the microchip, the cell phone or video games or gay dating apps or the internet cocoon of pornography that's destroyed millions of families and vocations. And bishops don't have a magic wand to cancel out the massively negative influence of popular culture on their people. Right. This, these are areas where, you know, in fact, a lot, again, a lot of times bishops can't always get in there. The bishops and priests need to be clear about what is wrong. And also in the modern world where there are many well-educated people, we have to give the reasons why it's yeah. wrong yeah. so that you just don't listen to what I say, but here's why. We have to explain it. 
But in terms of going to the culture, it's the lay people are going to be the politicians, the doctors, the psychologists, so, etc., who uh, go out there and everybody has their role to evangelize. Yeah, and particularly on this issue of the internet, you know, I mean, 20% of all internet and mobile phone web searches are pornographic, mm -hmm. you know. Now that uh, isn't going to be solved by, um, it's not going to be solved by a pastoral letter. It's going to be solved by clear teaching, obviously, from, a from the top in terms of bishops and priests, but it's got to be incarnated in the home in the relationship, the, the relationship of a husband and wife and how they treat their kids and what they teach them, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean... And, it, and how they guide them through the influences absolutely. of their friends. And nowadays, as I think one of the revelations that came from COVID, what are they actually teaching children in yeah. schools? Yep. And how we have to stand, you know, with the truth of Christ even if it's against what is said in schools, political leadership, and business leadership. You know, I, I ask people to, I remember, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I mean, about a decade ago, I, I began preaching the idea that we were living through a second reformation. And of course, I nearly got laughed out of the room because people see, well, wait a minute, 500 years ago, the differences are so drastic, we're not like the you know, 16th century. But what I meant, and what I mean, is that word reformation in its literal sense, a reformation of how we think about society, how we think about the nature of human beings. That's what we're in the middle of right now. And that's been triggered by the things that you just mentioned in terms of the internet, the transistor, the microchip. Those are things that have completely revolutionized society. We were talking earlier today, I think, and, and you know, in 1993, when I began working for a diocese, there were fewer than 200 websites worldwide. Today, there are more than two billion. Mm -hmm. Now that's a revolution, a fundamental revolution in the way that we communicate and organize our thoughts. And that has social and political and cultural consequences. And the church is in the mix of all that, trying to make sense of it and give people solid ground to, to, to stand on. So we have to understand that, to, to begin to understand the turmoil that so many of us feel in, internally and, mm -hmm. and in, our, in our culture. And we just have to, we just have to stick with the word of God and, and, and believe in the, have confidence in the church that she can come through this because she's done this before. One might even think it appropriate to say that we have to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Somebody famous said that. I no. think so. It's in my Bible. We're going to take a break. want to get some of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We are discuss, discussing a new book called True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church by Francis Mayer. And it is item number 46242. 46242. It's available at EWTNRC.com. 
And uh, again, I, I think to see the uh, rich responses and, and the very open candor that was made possible by so many uh, of the interviews being anonymous, um, I think that would be, uh, it's really well worth the, the time and the effort. Are you ready for some questions? Absolutely. Let's start off with Thomas in Tennessee. Thomas, what do you have for us this time? Well, I've got a question comment. It's kind of controversial, but I'm sure Mr. Meyer can handle it. And I'm really looking forward to his response. You're not uh, scared, are you? No, I'm not scared. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I was a follower of uh, uh, Archbishop Shaffer when he was in Philadelphia. And I knew him to be a man of truth and a, and a, and a person of a bishop, archbishop that stood by the teachings of the magisterium. Uh, I just wanted uh, Mr. Meyer to please comment on th that and what's what ha the incident in Tyler, Texas with Bishop Strickland and the incident in the Vatican or Rome with, uh, with Cardinal Burke. I guess my question is, uh, what is going on with uh, the American bishops in the Catholic Church between them and Rome? Well, that's kind of a, uh, a wide question, but I'll do the best that I can to answer it because it's a good one. Uh, I think uh, a couple of things. I, I'm not in a position to comment on the, uh, on the Bishop Strickland situation because I don't know the internal mechanics of that. I know, the, I, I know that Archbishop Shapu made it a habit to uh, be frank and very candid in his comments, always, always uh, merciful. I, I never saw him lose his temper, but he did have a, he certainly did have a backbone. Uh, in terms of um, the relationship between Rome and the American bishops, I think uh, the men that I interviewed, uh, there was no question of disloyalty. These are men who um, love the, love, uh, the Vatican, love the papacy, and are, are accustomed to being faithful. Uh, there's a lot of puzzlement and frustration in the sense that uh, they felt, uh, they don't know, they're, they're puzzled as to why the, the Pope seems to be negative toward the United States and negative toward the life of the church in this country because they're trying very hard to, to do their best and be faithful to the church. There's some irritation. One or two of the bishops were pretty uh, frank about that, but mainly it's just kind of puzzlement about the way they, way the Pope and the Curia seem to think about the American church. And uh, I think they're, you know, faithful, but right on that matter. I forget the last part of the question though. Could you please repeat that? Because I'd like to address it. There was Shapu, there was the Bishop, Bishop Strickland situation, and then... And uh, Cardinal Burke? Oh, Cardinal Burke. Yeah, I can only comment on that from a personal perspective. I think that, um, I think that seemed to be pretty rough treatment, and I don't know why that happened. I think he's a very different style thinker from Pope Francis because he's a canonist, and uh, the Pope has a very different formation. And there may be a personality conflict there that I don't understand, but uh, Cardinal Burke is a man of an immense character, and it's unfortunate that he appears to have been treated poorly. Okay. We have another caller. Steve, you're calling from the great state of Oregon. What yes, can we do have, for you? Uh, my question is, do you think uh, women uh, will be priests? And uh, two questions, and will the liberalism uh, by cardinals and bishops hurt the Catholic Church? All right. 
Yeah, no, I don't think that. I don't think it's possible, and I think that door has been closed. Wait, no mean, uh, first of all, with women priests. Women priests, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I think that's a dead issue. Uh, but a certain element in the church just, are, you know, a dog with a bone. I mean, they just won't let it alone. But I don't think that's theologically possible, and I think that was determined. Um, there, is some, there is some continuing argument theologically over female deaconesses, but um, that seems implausible to me as well. I, I'm not a theologian, and I really couldn't comment on that. Mm -hmm. I know that Archbishop Shapu didn't have any sympathy with that, nor did our, our seminary formators. Um, in terms of liberalism in the church, uh, I think, um, I think we're, we're living through a reaction to the last four popes and, and a, a resurgence of a certain kind of Catholicism that um, was a Catholicism without boundaries that uh, was part of the Vatican II era um, that uh, kind of died away under those previous pontificates and it's kind of a last gasp, last gasp attempt to resuscitate some of these issues. I don't think it'll go anywhere in the long run, but, uh, and it is very difficult to live through. I can, I'm sure you're in the same boat that I'm at in, in terms of um, the distaste for all this, but I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. As a matter of fact, there's a very interesting phenomenon of uh, among people who entered religious life and the seminary between 1955 and 1965. Mm -hmm. They were dubbed early on as the new breed. Mm -hmm. And they were much more of the progressive revolutionaries than was the Vatican Council mm -hmm. and how they proceeded. I mean, you went to Jesuit high school and you certainly would have learned quid quid recipitor, secundum modum recipientis recipitor. You know, that whatever is perceived is perceived according to the ability of the perceiver. Mm -hmm. And that generation saw the council not on its own terms, but through a lens of a progressivism yeah. they brought to the council and reinterpreted often against what the council said. And that was what they were living. Whereas ironically, <laughs> St. John Paul and Pope Benedict were at the council and wrote some of the documents. Yeah, that's one of the great ironies right now it is, is. is that um, Francis is the first pope since the council who had no direct experience of it. Right, um, and that certainly has that certainly factors into the way that he thinks about what's possible in terms of uh, living out the council properly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to again. I, I I hate to sound like a history addict here, but I mean, you have to understand that there were 400 years between Trent and Vatican II, and that's a period of immense social change in the world, uh, rev major revolutions, and and that you know the church has to live in the world, and some of that seeps in. So there were an enormous number of centrifugal forces that had built up within the church that were kind of let loose during Vatican II. Uh, some of them very positive and some of them really destructive. The function of the John Paul II pontificate was to be centripetal, to bring the church back together in the unity of, 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 of belief. Uh, that seems to be reversing itself now, but I don't believe there's a, a future for that. Yeah. We have uh, another caller, Maria. You're calling from the great state of California. What can we do yes. for you? Um, regarding clarity, if we don't get clarity from the church about issues, 
how are we supposed to move forward with that? Should that should we just dissent? Um, interesting question. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what things like EWTN exist for, to give that clarity and, and give people reassurance. We have the responsibility to be faithful Catholics. And if we're not getting that from the leadership, we need to go back to the, to the core doctrines and, and core teachers and, and um, the word of God to, 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 to be our foundation. I mean, there are, plenty of good, there are plenty of good teachers out there and you have to seek, seek them out and, and absorb them. Um, I don't know how else to advise you on that. I mean, we're living through a tumultuous period. There are going to be, there's going to be unclarity. And you have to seek out people who actually live the faith in an authentic and faithful way and trust them. And the reason I mention EWTN, it's certainly not the only one. There are dozens and dozens of these really good apostolates out there like the Augustine Institute, uh, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, the Leonine Fellows. These are all ministries and apostolates that are faithful to the consistent teaching of the church and you ally yourselves with them and listen to them and you're gonna come through the difficulties and confusions that the church is going through right now in a positive way. I think uh, another element of that will be, uh, I'm jumping on your historical bandwagon here. Um, <laughs> I, I think to actually read uh, earlier sources, to actually start to read more of the church fathers. Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't sound interesting, and it, and it really isn't, because I've done it and I know better, but reading what the councils have actually said, mm -hmm. what did happen at Trent? What did the council actually say? And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they typically write in a way that is foreign to us, um, they want to say anybody who says such, such, and such, and such is anathema. Mm -hmm. So they'll put it as, as something that's wrong. But then you draw from that, well, what did you mean? And you, you can, it's clear, uh, to read the Catechism of the Council of Trent. So that you know what Trent actually said. Yeah. You know, one of the and things, other elements of our faith. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, I made the mistake some years ago uh, when I was getting ready for confession for asking Sue Ann, my wife, what my primary sin was. Guys, don't do this at home because you're going to get the you're going to get the truth. <laughs> don't try this yeah, at home, I thought, kids. It was, I thought it was going to be something like pride, and she said, "You're nuts. You're, you have a problem with anger." And you know, she was absolutely right. I do have a problem with anger, and that anger comes from exactly the kind of unclarity and turmoil that we're going through in the church. And so the solution that I had, and I actually I got this idea from a, a very good Protestant friend, was to just sit down on a daily basis, or at least you know four or five times a week, and read three chapters of the New Testament. And I've been doing that for about two years now, and it, it, you know, it doesn't change my personality, but it certainly has helped me um, control my anxiety and my anger when I'm when I'm feeling this kind of internal turmoil and I recommend that to anybody you know I mean what what father just said in terms of reading the the documents of the church um, sometimes they can be tedious but they are very important mm -hmm. they do give you a sense that this is a pattern troughs and waves in the church we get into problems and then God pulls us out through the power of the saints and those saints are formed by deepening our understanding of the church and, the, and, and her teaching. And the best way to do that is to begin by reading the word of God on a regular daily basis. Yep. 
you know? That's very, very powerful, or doing the, um, you know, doing the Stations of the Cross or following the, you know, Lexio Divina. I mean, those are things that can be done in your home. They don't take all day. You know, give it 15 minutes. I mean, basically, I, I, when, I, when I go to Adoration Chapel, I go very early in the morning, and I spend 15 minutes reading the Word, and then 15 minutes praying, half an hour, and I'm back doing what I have to do for the day. And it's, it's, uh, it's just, it, it just anchors you in a way in the Word and in the experience of God that I, I would really recommend to you because it takes away some of the sting of the difficulties in the church. I wrote a, a book called um, uh, Father, Forgive Me for I'm Frustrated. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great title. It's a yeah, great title. Back in the 90s. One of the things I pointed out there is that we need to have a balanced spiritual diet and to look at the sacred scriptures as the meat of our faith and then to see the documents of the church, the council writings and such, and the papal encyclicals that we've had, see them as the potatoes of our faith. Mm -hmm. And then look to the things that saints actually wrote. Not so much what was written about them, but what they actually wrote are the vegetables mm -hmm. of our faith. Mm -hmm. You need a balanced spiritual diet to help you grow. And by staying with that balanced diet, you will have clarity, even when you know, other people don't that will give the clarity you need. And we, again, when we were younger, um, the idea of having clarity was seen as a weakness. Yeah. You, you had to, to have true freedom. You just had to go into the unknown and the meaningless and all. <laughs> Oh, shut up. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a strange time. Anybody who actually well, it was through... the, It was a reaction to the war. Yeah. That's what all that stuff was about. And they were afraid of being Nazis, so they went to the opposite extreme. Yeah. And, that... and we need clarity, and God reveals so much, but we have to go to the sources and let that build us up. You would have made an excellent chef, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I'm not a bad cook. Yeah, I, that, but that that combination of things really would really does uh, round out your faith and and give you uh, a number of supports for your for what you believe in a very difficult time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's and that that's what where we are. It's it's it is a difficult time, and you know something that you pointed out earlier. I said I pointed this out on my show yesterday around the 10th and 11th century, we had this horrible, horrible decline in among the church leaders. The popes were horrible. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time is when all the Slavs were converted. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the beginnings of faith in Poland, Russia, Ukraine, all these places were starting, and Scandinavia. This was the transformation of the uh, Vikings into Christians. Yes. That's pretty significant, yeah. despite all that mess. Yeah, because there's always been saints. I mean, the, 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 there always are saints. I mean, uh, uh, Georges Bernanos, the great French Catholic writer, did an essay, Our Friends the Saints, 
that uh, I really recommend to people. You can, get the, you can get that collection of essays. It's called Liberty, The Last Essays from Clooney Media. And uh, it's just, he, he makes this point. Bernanos had very little patience with uh, the theologically sophisticated. He was a very smart man himself, but he was mainly focused on the little people, you know, the average everyday believer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his point was that there, you know, we think about the cloud of witnesses as being in heaven, which of course they are. The cloud of witnesses are right here among us too. They just don't have the name saint yet because yeah. uh, they're still here and they're still doing their work. But if you look around you, you're gonna, you will see a lot of people who are otherwise invisible who are doing really, really beautiful work and, and expressing God's love in their, in their actions with other people. And uh, we don't notice that because our noses are stuck in the newspaper or on the internet thinking about all the problems. And in the process, we're not seeing this uh, kind of fifth column of really good stuff that's going on that, that will eventually produce a, a renewal in the church. Maybe not in the next 10 or 20 years or 30 years, but it's gonna happen because it's happened so many times before. People get to a point where they just get fed up with evil and they look for something else. And that's the point when, you know, Tolkien talked about the you catastrophe, the catastrophe that turns out well for the church. And that's the point when people are just disgusted with the world and fed up with the way it's going that they look for something else and that's the seed of a renewal that takes place in the lives of a lot of people. And I, I really believe in that. I believe in it more strongly now than when I started 45 years ago in the church, uh, working for the church. And nothing in the book um, repudiates that. In fact, it reinforces it. I mean, there's a chapter in there that I call Special People <clears throat> that focuses on three couples who are raising children in special needs situations. And I can't read that. I've read that maybe a hundred times. I can't read it without becoming really emotional because I wonder, you know, where do, where do these people come from? You know, that they, that they love this powerfully, you know? Uh, and you can't read that and feel bad about the world because these are people who are living the gospel under really difficult circumstances, but doing it with love and, um, great affection for the people that they're caring for. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the church is filled with, full, full of people like that. You know, you just don't hear about them. Well, this is one of the problems. We'll, we'll, we'll hear about, or people sometimes mm -hmm. say it, gossip about sometimes clergy or hierarchy who might not express the faith well or might even express a lot of doubt about the faith. You know, people tell me these things. Is, how do you react to that when you hear people say, well, what about these priests that don't, they don't seem to believe like I do. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't hold to what the church does. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, in a situation like that, I remember, <laughs> I, I think about the kinds of trash that I bring into the confessional. You know, I mean, I bring stuff that there's a lot of stuff that I do that uh, just on a routine basis that I, I, I regret because that's just na the nature of human beings. I mean, they, they, they mess things up, they, they sin, and it's easy to blame priests and forget I've got my own set of problems here. Once you begin, you know, we forgive ourselves very easily. The task is transferring that to other people as well. So. I expect people to be people. That's the reason I love Augustine, because he, he was simultaneously a pessimist and a hopeful man. 
yeah. because they're two entirely different things. Optimism and hope, as you've indicated many times, totally different creatures. You yes. know? Hope is based in faith and optimism is a mood yes. you know, or posture. Uh, or uh, oftentimes pe pessimism is the reaction against the dumb optimism you started <laughs> off yeah, with. It's a vicious where you cycle. you didn't start off with faith yeah. in God and the reality of sinful human nature. It's, again, a cartoon that was popular when we were growing up was Pogo. And the yeah. famous line was, we have met the enemy and they is us. <laughs> That's right. You know, we have to remember that we're among the sinners in the church. It's not them. We don't say to in the Hail Mary every time we pray it, pray for those sinners. No, it's pray for us sinners. Yes. Now and at the hour of our death, amen. Uh, you know, this is... We always have to remember that it's us and the Divine Mercy Chaplet is have mercy on us and on the whole world, yeah. not on them. There's one other thing that I, uh, that I think uh, is worth mentioning and talking about the content of the book. There's a chapter, I think it's four, on uh, the machinery and its fixing. And it's really a, uh, a post-mortem on the experience that we had in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia because when uh, Archbishop... Archbishop Shapu uh, took it over. I mean, there were, it was just a terrible mess, and yet it got fixed because people were committed to to making sure that the church was healed. Yeah, and and that's we have to again use good sense, a lot of energy, some tears, and get in to do the, Amen. the job. <laughs> Amen. Again, I want to encourage you to take a look at this very straightforward and yet hopeful book about the reflections by contemporary Catholics, from bishops and clergy and uh, the religious lay people. It's called True Confessions, Voices of Faith from a Life in the Church. It's by our guest, Francis Meyer. It's item number 46242. 46242. It's available at EWTNRC.com. Thank you very much well, for you, writing Father. the book and, and getting all these people together and for joining us tonight. And thank all of you for being with us. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we can have Fran here with us and bring you all the other guests and the programs we do only because this network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you. Okay.